Now, the movement continues. When we come to chapter 11, what is going to be the reception of his message? Now, you see, he enunciated the ethic. He performed the miracles. He sent his disciples out, and they covered all the cities of Israel. They went down the byways and highways of that day. What was the reception? Well, let me write over chapter 11 what it was. Rejection. Rejection. And this chapter marks a turning point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. After he sent forth the disciples to present his claims, what's the reaction and reception? Rejection. That's it. And we find as we begin here that even John the Baptist was a little disturbed. First of all, there was the doubt even in the mind of John the Baptist. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And our Lord didn't rebuke John for that. But he did send back by these disciples, tell him what you've seen, and he'll know that I have the credentials of the Messiah, of the one who's to establish the kingdom. And you find that back in the 35th of Isaiah, verses 5 and 6. Let me just lift out this. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Now, the wilderness didn't break out with water and there wasn't streams in the desert. Why? He didn't establish the kingdom when he came the first time. But he was the king and he had the credentials of the Messiah. And that's all that he said. Let's get our foot in the door of this chapter. came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, having sent them out, he went out. That's important to see. We need to get the word out today. We need to help others get the word out. Now, verse 2. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now, apparently John's been in prison a little while because way back in the fourth chapter, we were told then that he was put in prison. And John now has heard about Jesus and his disciples have been watching him and reporting to John. And John is expecting any day for the prison door to open and Jesus to deliver him because he thinks he's coming immediately to the throne. And he said unto him, sent his disciples now, two of them, they came and said, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? John was puzzled. Frankly, I think this question's a logical one. Many have criticized him for it. I think he had every reason to believe that the king would have assumed power by this time. And he's now definitely puzzled because he's moving so slowly. And I think the answer of Jesus is remarkable. And it can only be understood in the light of the credentials which the Old Testament said the Messiah would have. And you'll notice his answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 35 and to Isaiah 61, you will find out that when the Messiah came, here would be his credentials. And the credentials were the ones he had presented. Now, he said, you go back and tell John what you've seen. And John will recognize the credentials. 
And he says, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Now, John, who had been his forerunner, is puzzled. Our Lord now is going to defend him. Now, he defends John in case anyone wanted to criticize him. Verse 7, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. And by the way, he wasn't a reed shaken with the wind. He was a wind shaking the reeds. The pulpit today has become very weak because it will not speak out and tell the truth always. There is the danger today of the pulpit being subject to somebody sitting out there in the pew that doesn't like the preacher or the message tailored to suit a certain group in a church. The message should be given out regardless, and the pulpit should be a wind-shaking reeds and too often it's a reed that's shaken by the wind, by the way. And that's not as it should be. John the Baptist, thank God for him. He was a wind-shaking reeds, and he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. And our Lord continues, verse 8, But what went ye out for to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. John the Baptist was rugged and He was a rugged individual. Verse 9, What went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Now, he was a prophet, but he's more than that. The superiority of John actually over the Old Testament prophets is amazing here. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Our Lord declares clearly that he came to fulfill Malachi, the third chapter, verse 1, that he was the messenger. Now he goes on, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest of any in the past. Now we sometimes today debate the question of who was greater, Moses or Abraham. Then there are others that like to put David in the list. Well, the Lord Jesus said there'd been none greater than John the Baptist. And I'm sure our Lord would have put Abraham and Moses and David, since he mentioned them so many times, none of them topped John the Baptist. But now notice what he says, "...notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." So that when you come to this period, after our Lord came into the world, and this group he's calling out of the world today, the least. Why? Because he's in Christ, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now, verse 12, "...and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by storm." This has been a difficult verse. This force here can be either internal or external. And it's made it difficult to interpret this verse. The forces of evil from without seek to destroy it. That's true. But also only those who are committed wholeheartedly press into it. That is, they violently want to come in. You see, there is the note of need and desperation. 
We've already seen that one young man ran and fell at his feet and says, Master, I'll follow you whithersoever thou goest. You see, you have these two aspects. I'm not quite clear in my thinking what our Lord meant. I rather think he meant both. He was referring to both of these. Now let me read on at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see, John is a prophet. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what is it you're to hear? Well, the Spirit of God, I think, would make this clear to us. And will you listen to me very carefully here? The fact of the matter is that John the Baptist fulfilled the messenger that was to come in Malachi 3.1. But the question arises, if they had accepted Christ at that time, it had been promised that Elijah would come. All right, what about that? Our Lord said that this, if ye will receive it, that is, receive him, this is Elijah, which was for to come. I know somebody's going to say to me, well, that means he would establish the kingdom immediately. Then that would mean that John the Baptist would have been Elijah. That's it exactly. Somebody then says, well, how can that be? And I have an answer for you. I don't know. <laughs> I just know that's what Jesus said. And do you know that he can do things that I can't explain? And there are a lot of things God has done, is doing, going to do. I can't explain them. Well, God says he's going to do them. And I go along with the Lord on this, that this would have been true. In other words, this keeps this argument down today. There are those that say, well, it wasn't a sincere offer of the kingdom if he came and intended to go to the cross and die. Oh, yes, it was. Somebody says, well, if they had accepted him. Well, the interesting thing is they didn't. And these iffy questions are no good anyway. People say, if Adam and Eve had not have sinned, what would it have been? I don't know, because they sinned, friends. That's an if question. And these iffy questions are no good, and they pose problems that don't exist. And there are enough problems that do exist without making up some. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say here, verse 16, "...but whereunto shall I liken this generation?" And this is one of the parables he gave that is loaded, my friend, with biting sarcasm and irony, not to hurt or harm but to illustrate a great truth. He says, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? It's likened unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We've piped unto you and ye have not danced. We've mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. The picture is this, a group of children out playing in the street. And one group says, Let's play funeral. They play funeral and they say, No, we don't like that. Let's play wedding." They play wedding, and then they say, we don't like that. One extreme to the other. They're spoiled children. That generation was like that, and we have them like that today. Now, will you notice what is said here? For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a demon. John came. He's austere. My, I tell you, John was very severe, and he was out there in the wilderness fasting. 
Now the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. That is, there were those that said, Oh, John is too austere. Well, Jesus is friendly. What about him? Oh, he's gluttonous. There are some people in the church, friends, I've learned a long time ago, you can't please them, and you're better off if you forget about them, because nothing will please them. They don't like this preacher because he's quite dry. He just stands up there and in a monotone gives his sermon, and it's too deep, and they don't understand it. And then here comes along another one. He pounds the pulpit, and he has a great time, and he's very simple. And they said, we don't like him either. There are a lot of people you'll never please them, friends, at all. And that was true in our Lord's day. Now, verse 20, "...then began he to abrade the cities." Now, we've come to a tremendous change. He's the king. He has presented his credentials. He's performed miracles. He denunciated the ethic. He had presented himself. He preached the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had rejected him. He's the king, friends. And therefore, their decision caused him to make a decision. He rejects them. The king always has the last word. Listen to him now. Then began he to abrade the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Chorazin and Bethsaida were two places right up near Capernaum, his headquarters. And he had performed many works there. They had rejected him. He now pronounces a judgment upon them. Now, will you notice verse 22? But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And light, friends, creates responsibility. He never had a ministry or headquarters in Tyre and Sidon, but he did up on the Sea of Galilee. Light creates responsibility. And I think there are degrees of punishment as there'll be degrees of reward, because those that had a glorious opportunity, and many have, and turned their back on him. I sometimes put it like this, and I don't want to go into detail on it, but just make this statement. I do not know what God will do with that man out yonder in the South Pacific on a little island who's never heard the gospel, who's bowing down before an image. But I said, I do know what God is going to do with that man who comes and sits in a church where the gospel is preached Sunday after Sunday and does nothing about it. That's very clear what he'll do there. And that's the one I'm disturbed about today. Now listen to our Lord speaks of the place he'd made his headquarters. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. What a privilege they had having the headquarters of Jesus in their city, but they rejected him. Thou shalt be brought down to hell, for if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. God would never have destroyed Sodom, because if the mighty works he'd done there 
Why, that city would have made some movement. They had at least turned from their wicked ways and would not have merited the judgment that came upon them. Now listen to him. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And friends, this is very strong language, and it ought to make some folks sit up. I would 10,000 times rather be a hottentot in the darkness of a jungle, never having heard the gospel, than to be an officer in one of our modern churches who has an open Bible and who's never accepted Christ as his Savior. He makes it very clear here. Sodom and Gomorrah were terrible places, but it's going to be more tolerable for them than a place that heard the message of Jesus Christ, and he was there. Now, verse 25, "...at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes." And Lord of heaven takes you right back to Genesis, if you'll recall, back to the 14th chapter. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. But many wise miss it, and yet sometimes the babes catch it. Dr. Ironside said years ago, always put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddos can get them, the little ones can get them. And if you preach so the children understand it, you can almost be sure the older folk understand it, but even sometimes they miss it, how important it is. Now listen to him. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And this was his way, as he said to his own later on, No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now we come to a definite break and change in his message. I think anyone can see this. Before it had been repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's now been rejected as the Messiah. These cities have turned their back upon him, and so had Jerusalem. But listen to him, verse 28. He's now turning from the nation, no longer presenting the kingdom. He's now on the way to the cross, and he's giving an invitation to the individual. Listen to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, the burden that he's talking about here, heavy laden, the burden is the burden of sin. That was what Isaiah had said in Isaiah 1-4, Ah, sinful nation! a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They've gone away backward. They've backslidden. And the psalmist in Psalm 38, 4 says, For mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. Friends, sin's too heavy for you to carry. You'll really get a hernia if you try to carry your load of sin. And I mean, friend, the only place in the world to put your burden is at the cross of Christ. He bore it for you. 
He invites you to come. Bring your burden of sin to him, and he'll forgive you. He bore it for us on the cross. Then there's that commitment we can make, take his yoke. And that means to be yoked with him, learn of him. He's meek and lowly in heart. And then there's a rest that comes by being committed to Christ. You don't have to worry about certain things if you're committed to him. You don't have to be everlastingly trying to get on a committee in the church, become an officer, or become prominent, or sing a solo. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, there's so many preachers today trying to get on in their denomination. They want an office. And that's not confined to denominations. It's confined to all kinds of organizations. I just quit joining organizations. I got so tired of watching men that are ambitious, wanting an office, wanting a job, wanting to be chairman of something, a president of something. May I say to you, it's marvelous to be committed to him. And then you don't have to worry about the office or the position. You don't have to be running around after it because he'll put you right where he wants you if you're yoked up to him. Now, that brings us to chapter 12. There's a definite movement here, as you can see. The disciples went out. He sent them out. He went out. What happened? Rejection of him. Now, open conflict in chapter 12. Now, we'll be able to get our foot in the door of this chapter. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. Actually, the Pharisees and the scribes broke with him on the question of the Sabbath day. He asserted that he was the Lord of the Sabbath day. Here is where they broke with him. And here is something I'd have you note that's so important. Before we get involved in this sabbatic argument that he had, they've been arguing it ever since, is this. His disciples were pulling the ears of corn and eating them. And it was the wheat or the oats of barley, and they were taking it and eating it. Now, to pull that was harvesting, and they were doing it on the Sabbath day. But the interesting thing is, why did they do it? Well, they were hungry. Why were they hungry? They were following him. And you remember, our Lord said to that man who wanted to follow, the foxes have holes, the birds that there have nests. Son of man hasn't anywhere to lay his head, and he also has difficulty eating at times. The poverty that he bore. And they're hungry. That's the reason they did it. And our Lord now is going to defend them. And here is the break. And you have a Sabbath question in two places. You'll find it here on the outside in the field, then again in the synagogue. And these are two places, the inside and the outside, or the outside and the inside. Now, will you notice? But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. They were harvesting. That's what it would have been called in that day. And I'm willing to go along with that because they did it by hand in that day. And it sure looked like these 12 men going through just pulling it right and left. And they said, that's harvesting. You're breaking the Sabbath day. Now, there breaks out into the open a conflict between the Lord Jesus and the religious rulers of that day, the Pharisees in particular. They were apparently very friendly to him at first. But now they break with him, and they break on the question of the Sabbath day. 
And he went through the fields, as we saw last time, his apostles with him. And I tell you, these 12 men pulling first on the right hand, left hand, it was really getting the grain. It was real harvest time for them. And they were hungry. It's the reason they did it. Now, the Pharisees, they rebuke him, and they rebuke the disciples, and they tell the Lord Jesus, why do you permit it? And his answer was, verse 3 now of chapter 12 of Matthew, but he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was a hungered, and they that were with him? If you'd go back to 1 Samuel, the 21st chapter and the first six verses, you'd have the record of this there. It was during the days of the rejection of David as king, and Saul was ruling. Actually, the Lord Jesus was being rejected at this time as king. His messianic claims had not been acknowledged. Now, he takes care of his own on the Sabbath day. David did that. Let me tell you, he broke the Mosaic law. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing for their interpretation. But... The law even granted this to take place under certain circumstances. And notice what he says, "...how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless?" They work on the Sabbath day. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. He claimed here superiority over the most holy center of their religious life, and that was the temple. As far as they are concerned, he's blasphemed. Not only broken the Sabbath, but blasphemed. Now in verse 7, "...but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy." and not sacrifice. And by the way, that's in the law. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Now he defends these men and say they did not break the Sabbath day. Why? Well, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And believe me, he put his hand on the most sacred thing that they had, and he said he was the Lord of the Sabbath day. He could make no greater claim in the eyes of the Pharisees. That certainly engendered their bitterness and their hatred. Now, I move down to verse 9. We leave the field where this incident took place relative to the Sabbath day and go into the synagogue inside, and we still have the same question. Verse 9, when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. He didn't say ours, but their synagogue. And you will notice in the Gospel of John, it was... The Lord's temple at first, but he finally said, Your house is left unto you desolate. Now will you notice, when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? You see, they planted this man there. And when they planted that man there, the enemy actually paid him the finest compliment that was possible because they made two important admissions 
they admitted that he had power to heal the sick, or he wouldn't have put that man there. You see, they never raised the question about him whether he performed miracles or not. You've got to get 2,000 years this side of it. You have to be working in a musty library today on a doctor's degree or a master's degree before you can come to that conclusion. But if you've been living then, you've never been able to deny he performed miracles. So they admit that he had power to heal the sick. But something else, and this is to me the most wonderful thing at all, they acknowledge that when a helpless man was placed in his pathway, that he was moved by compassion to heal him even on the Sabbath day. And my friend, that's quite an admission. Now, the question of the legality of healing on the Sabbath day was, of course, designed here to trap him. But Jesus actually trapped the enemies. They would concede that a sheep should be rescued on the Sabbath day. The Mosaic law made allowance for that. But now notice verse 12 here. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. And this is the crux of the whole matter. Should he do good on the Sabbath day? Well, regardless of your answer, then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. Did he break the law? What's your answer? My answer is that he didn't. Now, will you notice verse 14? Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. This is the break that he made with the religious rulers. Up to this point, they have been watching him, of course, at first friendly. Then when he would not cooperate with them, they very frankly wanted to attach their wagon to his little star, and they wanted to move that way, but he refused. And then they began to watch him. Then finally they became his enemy, and here the break is made. This is open conflict, and from here on these bloodhounds of hate got on his trail, and they never let up till they folded their arms beneath his cross. They began now, because of this, to plot his death. They would have taken him at this time, but they were afraid of the crowd. Verse 15, "...but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence." And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. He just didn't have a few that were healed. All of them were healed. There were multitudes of people, friends, in that day that he had healed. You and I can't even conceive of the impression that he made in that day. It was something that was absolutely astounding. They had to accept or reject him. And he's still controversial. The enemy today is still after him. These new dirty plays, new dirty books are blaspheming him. You have to make a decision about him. You have to decide about him. You will either be his friend or his enemy. He'll be your savior or he'll be your judge. You can't get rid of Jesus Christ. Now, notice here, he healed the multitude, and he charged them that they should not make him known. He didn't come to this earth as a thaumaturgist, that is, a wonder worker. He came to present his claims as Messiah. When that was rejected, 
He then continues his march to the cross because he came also as the Savior of the world. And therefore, this caused crowds to come around and he couldn't carry on his ministry as he wanted to. And he did this that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break. No, he will bind up that reed that will let him. And smoking flax shall he not quench. No, if that one goes on and rejects him, he's like smoking flax. It'll break into the fire of judgment. He won't stop that because man has a free will. Till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now, there's this definite moving out today, not only for the fulfillment of prophecy, but fulfillment of prophecy that concerns the Gentiles, they are to be saved. Then was brought unto him one, this is verse 22, one that was possessed with a demon, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? This is our Messiah. He has the credentials. And this was a tremendous miracle here. Now, I've suggested this before, that the casting out of demons was the greatest miracle he performed. Frankly, friends, I think it's just as great as raising the dead, if not greater. Now, I'm going to reserve till we get to the gospel of Luke before I go into detail about this matter of demon possession. Dr. Luke was a medical doctor that day. And he presents this, and we want to look at the way that he presents it. Now, will you notice, the people say he's the Messiah. But what the Pharisees say, verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Now, this is the matter of the unpardonable sin. Will you follow this very carefully? And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons... By whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now, they would never say that their own children, if they cast out demons, were doing it by Beelzebub. Now he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom as God is come unto you. You see, the kingdom of God is among you in the presence of the Messiah. I'm here, and if I can do this... This is my credential, that the kingdom of God is here. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house, spoil his goods, except he bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, listen to him now, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto man. 
but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto man. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, the important thing is to see here is that there's no sin that you committed yesterday that he would not forgive you for today. He died for all. But you see, the Holy Spirit has come into the world to make real the salvation of Christ. If you resist that working of the Spirit of God when he speaks to your heart, then, friends, there's no forgiveness, of course, because you have rejected the forgiveness that he offers that can only be made real to you by the Spirit of God. For it's the Spirit of God that regenerates you. It's the Spirit of God, you see. Therefore, this is the thing that he's talking about here, and this is the thing that would be unpardonable. Now, he'll go on in another gospel to amplify this, to say that the unpardonable sin was to attribute to him that he had done these things by Beelzebub when he was doing them by the Spirit of God. You see, they were rejecting the witness of himself and of the Holy Spirit. Now, today, that particular sin cannot be committed because it could only be committed when he was here upon the earth. Therefore, there's no act of sin today that you could commit that there's not forgiveness for. But to resist the Holy Spirit, of course, there's no forgiveness for that because he's bringing forgiveness. It's just like a man who's dying of a certain disease, and the doctor says, here's the remedy for it. Now, the man refuses to take the remedy. The man actually dies, not from the disease, but because he refused the remedy. There was a remedy for the disease, you see. Now, there's a remedy for sin. The Holy Spirit applies it today. But to resist that, then there's no remedy, you see. That's the only way it can be unpardonable today. But to say that there's an act that you commit, of course not. We'll see that again, of course, when we get to Mark and to Luke. Now, verse 34, he says, O generation of vipers. John had called them that also, by the way. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Now, he goes on to say, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. What's in the well of the heart? will come out through the bucket of the mouth, someone has said. But he says, I say unto you, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. An idle word actually means blasphemy. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. By thy words thou shalt be condemned, because you're speaking the thing that's in your heart. Verse 38, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we'd see a sign from thee. Now, these men are not sincere. They're trying to trap him. Listen to him. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what was the sign of Jonah? Well, listen to him. First, Jonah was three days, three nights in the whale's belly. So shall the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jonah was apparently raised from the dead when he was in the fish. God brought him out of it into light. Now, 
just as Jonas was, and that was a sign to the Ninevites. Listen, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. Actually, the whole city turned to God. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And they were rejecting him. Then he gives the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. They shall condemn it. She came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Puts himself greater than Jonas, greater than Solomon, you see. Now, the queen of Sheba was saved. She came all the way from the ends of the earth, and he's come to them, and yet they will not turn to him. And now he gives this parable, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Now, a man has an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit goes without the man. And the man thinks he's all cleaned up. He's all swept, cleaned, and varnished. And what happens? He saith, I'll return into my house from whence I came out. And when he's come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Reformation is no good. You can quit doing a whole lot of things, friends, and that won't make you a Christian. Let me put it like this. If everybody right now would quit sinning in the world, there wouldn't be any more Christians the next minute or the next day because quitting sin doesn't make Christians. Reformation is not what we need. All we'd be is just a bunch of empty vessels, that's all. But what happened? Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last estate of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. You see, the hardest people in the world today are unsaved church members because they think they're all right. They're swept, cleaned, and garnished. But may I say to you, they're a vacant house. And all the evil spirits have to do, they can move in. The devil owns them, and they don't recognize it at all. Now, verse 46, "...while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. He answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand to his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren." What's he really saying? He is saying that the strongest relationship today is the relationship between Christ and a believer. And friends, if you're a child of God today, and you have an unsaved father or mother, or an unsaved brother, you are closer to Jesus Christ today than you are to those that are blood kin to you, to the very mother that bore you. This is something that is tremendous today. And you're closer akin to other believers than you'd be with anyone that is blood-related to you. This is tremendous. He's talking now about a new relationship. Verse 50, "...for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother." What is the will of the Father? Well, that you accept the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear Him, trust Him, turn to Him. Now, our study at this time takes us into the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I trust you have your Bible handy and that you'll be able to turn there and follow along because we have come to one of the high points 
of the gospel of Matthew. This is one of the great chapters. Now, I know that I've said that before, and I'm sure I'll be saying it again, but actually this is one of the three major discourses. We've had already the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and now we have the mystery parable discourse, and later on, Matthew 24 and 25. Let me put it like this. We have said that the gospel of Matthew is probably the key gospel to the Bible. It's the open door to both the Old and New Testaments. And if that's true, then the 13th chapter of Matthew is the key to the gospel of Matthew. So that makes this chapter very important. In fact, all important. I believe that we'll find here a better understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is than we will in any other place. You will recall that our Lord came and followed John the Baptist, who preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And our Lord enunciated the law of that kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the king. Then he demonstrated that he had the dynamic, the power. And then he sent his disciples out. He was rejected. Then we find him in conflict. And then he hands down a judgment, as we saw last time, against these religious rulers and the cities where his mighty works had been done. And when they asked for a sign, he said no sign would be given. But that of Jonah, Jonah was a sign a resurrection sign, and they were to have that one shortly after this. You remember that very personal invitation, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll rest you.'" Now, the question is, what happens to the kingdom of heaven? Apparently now he will not establish it on the earth at this time, at his first coming. Now, what will happen to the kingdom of heaven? Well, we have these mystery parable discourses, And they set before us a kingdom of heaven condition. Now, let me say some very definite, and I want to say them as dogmatic statements. I hope that I give that impression. He gave here seven parables, and some think that he gave eight parables. And in these parables, he set before us the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That is, the condition of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not synonymous with the church, and the church is not synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is Christendom, and the church is in Christendom today, but it's not all of it by any means. I'm sure that the wildest interpreter of the Scripture would not say that in the kingdom of heaven, that they'd be sowing pears. This is the form it's taken during the days of his rejection. Now, he covers the entire period with these parables here. These parables, I consider them very important indeed. First is the sower. Second is the tares and the wheat. The third, the mustard seed. Fourth is the woman hiding leaven in bread. The fifth is hid treasure in a field. The sixth is the pearl of great price bought by the merchantman. And then the dragnet that went out into the world and brought in all kinds of fish. And then things new and old, if you want an eighth one, that the householder brings forth things new and old. I think you can consider that a parable, but 
certainly wouldn't want to dwell on that to any great length. Now, you'll notice, very active, Jesus is interesting. The same day went Jesus out of the house, the house of Israel, sat by the seaside. The sea, with all of its waves, speak of the nations. He, as it were, leaving the nation and now turning to the world. And now he's speaking of what's going to take place in the world until he comes again. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. What a dramatic scene this is. Verse 3, now of Matthew 13. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Now, this is very important to see. I hope that you won't miss it, because it's all important. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And this parable is really the key to the other parables. And what I mean by that is, our Lord interpreted this parable, and he interpreted the parable of the tares and wheat. And you will find that he gave interpretation to certain things in these two parables. Now, you'll find that that'll carry over in the other parables. I do not think that we have a right to interpret one of the other parables and contradict something that he's given. For instance, he mentions the bird here, the evil one, in this parable of the sower, representing Satan. Well, I don't think birds are going to be something good later on in another parable. I think that we have to be consistent and follow his interpretation. Now, you will notice, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And he'll interpret that later on, and I'll just run ahead and give his interpretation. The sower is the son of man. What's he going to do now in the world? What is the Lord Jesus doing today in the world? If you'd ask me, I'd say that he's a sower. He's sowing seed in the world today. The Word of God, by the way, is the seed. And that also is interpreted for us. You'll find that the interpretation is given to us here. Now, let's move on down in this, and let me read the parable, and then we'll look for the interpretation of it. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell under good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is the parable that is given to us. Now, we want to look at this parable because it's very important to the understanding of the other parables. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Now, that was a familiar sight in Palestine. They would just sort of scratch the surface of the ground with a very crude plow. Sometimes they didn't even do that. And the sower would go out and fling the seed 
That was a very familiar sight. Well, even today in our land, in the springtime, all the way from Pocadilla, Idaho to Pensacola, Florida, and all the way from Chicago, Illinois to Cucamonga, California, and from Minnesota to Muleshoe, Texas, you'll see them sowing wheat and corn and cotton. And it's a very familiar sight. The thing today is they use a machine to sow the seed, however. It was very crude in that day. Now the sower, we are told very definitely, over in verse 37, he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Now that's in the parable of the tares and the wheat. Now the one who sows the seed here is the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus, that is what he's doing. That defines the work of Christ in reference to the world. He was the king. He laid aside his regal robes. He's a farmer today, sowing seed, but he's still a king. Now, you'll note what the seed, the seed in verse 19, we're told, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, the seed is the word of God that's made also clear to us here. Now, the field, we're told, verse 38, we're told that the field is the world. It's not the church, you see. We're talking about a world situation. It's Christendom. And I think the picture would be something like this. Here is the church in the world, and outside there are these multitudes of people that have not accepted Christ. And the word is given to this one, and the word is given to that one, and the word is given to someone else. And this one accepts, that one does not accept. Our business is to sow seed. Not everybody that we give the word to accept it, but we give it out here on the radio. We're just flinging it out here. I don't know where it's going, but I find out later on that it goes into good ground. Let me just give you, and I've saved my letter for today for this particular place and for this purpose. And this one comes from right here in Los Angeles. And the listener writes, I just received all the notes and outlines. I was so thrilled and happy to receive them. I just had the right to thank you. Two and a half years ago, I wasn't even a Christian. But for the last 20 months, Christ has been in my heart ruling my life, and I've had a real hunger from the Word. Now, to me, that's an example of what I'm called to do today. The Lord Jesus has charge of this great program of sowing seed. But he's given me a little corner, and my business is to sow seed. I interpret that to be the important thing. And I'd like to be rather specific here. This is the day for sowing seed. And I don't want to quibble or split hairs. But the harvest is not the picture for today. But somebody says, didn't Christ say, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest? We've already seen that. Well, remember I call your attention that I'd have something further to say about that. Now the Lord does something quite interesting here. He says, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, if you've got these things on the side of your head called ears, can't you hear him? Yes. But notice, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Now, a parable, someone has interpreted, is an 
earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's very good. But the word parabole, we get our word ball for that. You throw something down by the side of something. It's like putting a ruler down by the side of a table or a wall, and you measure it. Now, that ruler is a parable. It's put down to measure it. Now, he gave these parables to measure heavenly truth, to set that before us. Now, why did he do it? He answered and said unto them, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. Now, this is the illustration of that. If a man wants to know the word, he can know it. He that wants to know the truth can know the truth. But if you'll shut your ears to it, and there are multitudes of broad-minded people, so-called, that shut their ears to the Word of God. And if you don't want to hear it, well, you won't hear it, my friend. Not only will you not hear it, you wouldn't understand it even if you do. You must have that inner ear that wants to hear the Word of God. For he says, "...whosoever hath, to him shall be given." And he shall have more abundance. And if you want to know the truth and know a little, he'll add to it. But whosoever hath not, you don't want to know it? Well, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. God will see to it that you don't get it. You see, he never shuts the door to one who wants to hear. It's those who do not want to hear. And that's exactly what he's saying here. And he says, that's the reason that I'm speaking to them in parables. Now, we have, first of all, the wayside hearers. What about these wayside hearers? Well, verse 19, "...when any one heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside." Now, we're told that these birds here are the evil one, the devil takes away that which is sown by the wayside. This is something that ought to cause every church member to examine his own heart. Don't apply this to the other fellow. What about you? Someone has written this very clever little poem. It says, When you get to heaven, you'll likely view many folk there who will be a shock to you. But don't act surprised or even show a care, for they might be a little shocked to see you there. Well, we have no right to sit in judgment, but apparently these are church members, professing Christians. They heard the Word, but it was not the hearing of faith. The Word was not mixed with faith. Or if it was, it was a formal intellectual faith that just nodded the head and did nothing. In other words, to them, Christianity is a sideline. Belonging to the church is like belonging to a lodge or a club, only they are not even as devoted to the church as they are to a lodge or to a club. Sort of a sideshow. And these folk are in deep freeze. You see them not only in our churches today, they're in cults and isms today. Fell by the wayside. And now... We have another group here, and those were the ones that on stony places. It was rocky ground. What about them? Verse 20, "...but he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation of persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he's offended." Now, these rocky ground ones, they're the opposite, by the way, of the wayside ones. The devil took it away 
from the wayside. This is the flesh here gets in the way. These people are not in deep freeze as the one by the wayside. These people are in the oven. They are warm. They're emotional. They shed tears. They're greatly moved. They have feeling. These are what I call Alka-Seltzer Christians. The others were in deep freeze. These are fizzing. And there's a lot of fizz and frizz to them. And they make as much fuss during a meeting as a rocket on a launching pad, but they never get into orbit. They are what I call the Southern California type, and I've been out here since 1940. They have a great zeal and energy, but they're just like a burnout Roman candle after the meeting is over. I stood on the back end of a train years ago, the Santa Fe, going to Chicago, and I'd left Fort Worth, Texas. And late that evening, we were going through Kansas, and there was a paper there on the railroad track. Somebody had thrown it out. And when that train went by right afterward, my, that paper just fluttered up in the air, and it just went every direction. But just soon as the train got by, it just began to settle down, and finally it got dead still on the track. And as I looked way back at that paper as it was just lying there, I thought, that's just like a lot of Christians. You have a meeting, something sensational. Oh, my, how they get into gear. But it's not real with them. It's just an emotional splurge. They are the rocky ground. And then there are those that are like the thorns. What about those? Well, he says, he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitful of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Now, the ones where the seed fall in thorny ground, they represent the ones that the world crowds out the Word of God. You see, the devil got the wayside. The flesh took care of the rocky ground, but the world takes care of those in the thorny ground, the cares of the world. Sometimes it's poverty, and the other time it's the deceitful of riches. This is something that is quite interesting, that the two groups, one that are in abject poverty on one side of the spectrum, of the social spectrum, and the other, at the other extreme, prosperity, they're rich. Those are the two folks that are the most difficult to reach outside of the church today. I find that a great many people have let the world crowd out the Word of God. Now, these are not just different types of believers. They're not believers at all. They are those that have heard the Word. They profess to receive it. Actually, right now, I'm confident that listening to me all over this land, there are those that are in all three classes. It's well for all of us to examine ourselves and see whether we're in the faith or not. Thank God, though, some of the seed falls in good ground. And in verse 23, that's interpreted for us. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit, bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. These are the hearers, and they've received it. Now, some maybe not bring forth very much fruit, but they bring forth thirtyfold, and some will bring forth sixtyfold, and some will bring forth a hundredfold. This is the picture that's given to us here. And you see, they must understand it. The Ethiopian eunuch, you remember, was reading. He didn't understand. 
but he wanted to. And the Spirit of God put Philip there as a hitchhiker, and he got on and took a ride. And he gave the Ethiopian eunuch a ticket to heaven. He told him that the one that was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this man accepted and received him. Now, we're sowing seed. That's our business. I interpret that as being our business today. This is a kingdom of the heaven situation. And here you have the mystery parables of the kingdom. We have here about, oh, seven or eight parables, and they're all drawn from the commonplace. Our Lord took these things that were at the fingertips of those people in that day, something they could see and know in order to give them great spiritual truth. Someone has put it in a very lovely poem like this. He talked of grass and wind and rain and fig trees and fair weather and made it his delight to bring heaven and the earth together. He spoke of lilies, vines and corn, the sparrow and the raven, and words so natural yet so wise were on men's hearts engraven. Now, last time we saw the parable of the sower, and we saw that it would be called a kingdom of heaven condition. This is not the church we're talking about here. It's the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that today this is the picture of the present hour, and it's bigger than the church, the kingdom of heaven, because it encompasses the earth. And it's the reign of the heavens over the earth, as we've indicated. Now, God's program today is through the church, and the church is a called-out body. And that means he's calling out a people to his name. And you have, therefore, a kingdom of heaven conditioned today. God's carrying on his program. But notice now in this next parable, which he interprets, by the way, makes it very clear. Verse 24, "...and another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field." Well, you see, he picks up actually where he left off before, because he told then about a sower going forth to sow and what happened to the seed. And we found out that only one-fourth of it ever got into good ground, and the other three-fourths are folk that hear the word, but they do not respond to it. They're not saved. And your percentage here is about a fourth. Unfortunately, my percentage is less than that of the people that I preach to. The unsaved, I would say, less than a fourth. Frankly, we feel that if one out of ten of those who respond to our invitation is genuine, that our batting average is good. And frankly, I find that other Christian workers and evangelists today, I know a very prominent evangelist, and a member of his team said that only 3% of their converts, that is, only three out of a hundred, could be considered genuine. Well, that, may I say, it reveals that our batting average today is not too good, but we thank God that it is that good. That's the picture today. We're in a kingdom of heaven situation, giving out the Word of God, and this is what happens to it. But here's another facet, another phase of the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture of a man which sowed good seed, but wait a minute. 
But while man slept, not the sower, <laughs> the sower's the Lord Jesus. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. But I do, maybe you do. While man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, we have an enemy. We know who the enemy is. It's Satan. And he sows tares. That's false doctrine. And there's a great deal of that type of sowing today. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. You see, at first you couldn't tell the difference. Very frankly, a lot of the cults and isms, at first they sound very good. It's about that 12th, the 13th, the 14th lesson. That's the one you're going to have to watch, not the first one. Somebody said to me some time ago, Dr. McGee, you ought not to criticize so-and-so because I listened to him and he preaches the gospel. He did that day and every now and then he does. But may I say it's the other things that he says later on. You see, the tares have been sown among the wheat. Now, verse 27, So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, You see, the sower knew, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together. Notice this, friends, this is important. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is the picture, and it's a very important picture, friends, to see and interpret. He says here, don't try to pull up the tares. Let them both grow together, and they'll finally head up, and you'll then be able to recognize tares. By their fruit ye shall know them, and then by the wheat. You'll know it in time. But don't attempt to pull up tares. Now, someone comes to me and says, Pastor McGee, do you think the world's getting better? And I say, yes, I think it's getting better. Somebody else comes and says, Dr. McGee, don't you think the world's getting worse? And I say, yes, I think the world's getting worse. And somebody that's standing there that's heard me say both says, what are you trying to do, ride the fence, trying to please everybody? That's very much unlike you, right? May I say, but both are true. The wheat's growing today, and the tares are growing today. The world's getting better. The wheat's growing, heading up. Never has been a time, frankly, when there has been as much Bible teaching as there is right now. I thank God for that. There's a great deal of it, friends. Frankly, I'd love to blanket the earth so nobody would have an excuse. But I guess I can't do that. But I'm satisfied just wherever the Lord wants me to fling out the seed, I'll fling it out. Now, what happens? Well, it grows. And I'll be honest with you. I think there's some wonderful saints of God today who love the Word of God and who will die defending it. Thank God for them. The wheat's growing, friends. But I want to tell you, there's a lot of tares. I've been a pastor a long time. 
And my thought, when I entered the ministry, I entered a denomination, and I entered it with the idea that I was going to clean it up. I was going to straighten them out. You know, a lot of the young preachers feel that way about it. And you know, they just about cleaned me out and straightened me out. I tell you, I found out I couldn't do that. And I was thankful to find out from this passage and related passages that my business today is to preach the Word. (laughs) My business today is to give out the Word of God, and I'm not around pulling up tares anymore. When I started, I tried to pull them up. And I found out that there's some trying to pull up the wheat. So I had my problems. Therefore, my business is to sow it. And I believe that is the responsibility today. Now, both are growing in the world. Now, this is a kingdom of heaven situation. Actually, it's not his church. You say, well, it's in the organized church, yes, but the organized church is not his church. His church is that invisible number. And when I say invisible, I mean they're not confined to an organization. I actually don't like that term invisible church because I find out a lot of the saints understand by that that they're to be invisible Sunday night and they're invisible at the midweek service. In fact, they're invisible a whole lot of times. But the true believers irrespective of any denomination, those that have trusted Christ and are resting in him and love his word. I think that's the real test. Therefore, this is a kingdom of heaven condition, and both are growing together today, aren't they? Don't be disturbed. He's the one that's going to put in the sickle. He's the one that's going to separate tares and wheat. I'm thankful that's not my job, because I wouldn't know, and I'm afraid I would pull up some wheat. Verse 31, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed. Now, we got a different kind of seed here, friends, and this is mustard seed. Now, mustard is a condiment. It has no vitamins in it. It's not wheat germ. You put it on hamburgers. You couldn't live on mustard. And mustard is not a tree. It's just a little bitty plant, by the way, which a man took and he sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. I was rather amused the other day reading one of these young liberal preachers saying he thought this was profound. He had found out that the mustard seed is not the least of all seeds. Well, now, what did the Lord mean then if it's not the least of all seeds? Well, it was the least of all seeds that those people knew about in that day. And for this brother's benefit, it's a pretty small seed, by the way. We're not splitting hairs, but we seem to be splitting seeds. May I say, in desperation, they try to find errors in the book. Let's just leave it like it is. It's the smallest of seeds, friends. And it's one of the seeds that a man took and sowed in his field. The important thing is... There may be other seeds smaller, but also it's not to become a tree either. And this one here became a tree. But when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs. But here it becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, what you have here is the growth of Christendom, the outward growth of the organized church. It's a mustard seed. You see, a condiment, it adds spice to it. 
And a lot of people today say the church must become relevant. We must identify ourselves with the common and contemporary culture of the day. And we must just get right down there with him. Where did you get that? You don't get that out of the Word of God. May I say to you that this is the picture of that little mustard seed. I like to term this. This is the parable about the little seed that got to the vigoro. And my, how it grew. It became a tree. Big organizations today. My, how the church boasts of its big organizations, big numbers. And has very little influence, by the way. But it does have just a little mustard. And we're not to be mustard. We're to be salt. And we are not to even be pepper. And if we are, we've sure lost our pep. But here you have the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. And I heard the interpretation of that several years ago that made me smile. It was a liberal interpreting it in my denomination at that time. And at a church meeting, he told about how the mustard seed was growing. That was the church. And a lot of the birds were coming roosting in it. And he had a Baptist bird and a Presbyterian bird and a Nazarene bird. And I want to tell you that he had a lot of funny birds in the tree. But that's not what it means. The birds, our Lord's already interpreted. He said, the birds come and took away the seed. And who was the birds? He said the birds were the enemy, was Satan. So I don't like that interpretation at all. And I'm afraid this brother was way out in left field on that one. This is Christendom, and evil has gotten into the organized church. I think we need to recognize that. And that's the reason that God's people ought to be very careful about the church that you belong to, you identify yourself with. It should be true in doctrine, but it also should be true in its actions. It should be honest and truthful. These are things that are very important. Now he gives another parable, the fourth parable. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Now, this is the parable that I would say is the key parable of the chapter. Now, let me back up and say something that ought to make this appear very important to you. First of all, the Gospel of Matthew is the key book of the Bible. Second, the 13th chapter is the key chapter of Matthew. And the 33rd verse here is the key verse of the 13th chapter. So, may I put it like this? Actually, what we have here is the key verse to the Bible. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And frankly, it's very important. This is the one that we need to look at, and I wish I had time to go into a great deal more detail even than we can in a five-year program. Now, will you notice some things here that are very important? I'll read it. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now, the mustard seed, that's a different kind of seed we saw. 
And we saw that the birds got in to Christendom, the organized religion. Now, here is one that really reveals the condition today. The kingdom of heaven today is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now, there are those that talk about the leaven of the gospel. They ought to know better. Nowhere is the leaven used as a principle of good. It's always a principle of evil. It occurs 98 times in the Bible and about 78 times in the Old Testament and about 23 times in the New Testament, and it's always used in a bad sense. Dr. Lightfoot, a great scholar, made this statement. Rabbinical writers regularly use leaven as a symbol of evil. Now, leaven's not the gospel. The three measures of meal just happen to be. Because what is the meal made out of? Why, it's made out of the seed. It's made out of the wheat, the grain. And that is the picture of the Word of God. What happens to it? Well, this woman comes along. And I hope you ladies listening in will forgive me for saying this. But when you find woman in a doctrinal sense in Scripture, you always find She's used as a principle of evil. In the book of Revelation, when we got there, you remember Jezebel, you've suffered that woman Jezebel to teach. Well, when she gets in that position, then it's a principle of evil. And here is a woman taking the leaven and hiding it. Now, if this is the gospel, why in the world do you hide it? It's to be shouted from the housetops. It's to be heralded to the very ends of the earth. You don't hide it at all. This is a principle of evil, if you please, and it's put into the meal, which is the Word of God. And today you find that no cult, no ism, ignores the Bible. I find today that these devil worshipers, demon worshipers, and there's a great deal of it right here in Southern California, they use the Bible, but you see they put leaven in three measures of meal. And what does leaven do? Well, leaven is a principle of corruption. You put leaven in bread, and what happens? Causes it to rise, makes it tasty, too, to the mouth. And that's the reason a great many people find a thrill in some of the cults. Because, you see, unleavened bread, it's just blah as far as the natural taste is concerned. A little leaven really helps it. And I happen to be from the South. My mother used to make biscuits and she'd put leaven in and put them on the back of the stove, and they'd begin to rise. And you'd come running in the kitchen, and she'd shush you. You don't want the biscuits to fall. Then she'd take those biscuits and put them in the oven when they got to a certain height. And she didn't stop it by putting them in the oven and baking them. Why, it would be corruption. Have you ever seen what happens to it when you keep letting them rise? I tell you, it makes a pan of something you don't want. But when it gets to a certain place, it's very tasty. Leaven is a principle of evil. And this, I think, is one of the key interpretations of the Word of God, my friend. Now, our Lord stopped here for a moment, and he said, "...all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them." that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, just nail that down. 
He's telling us something new here. And this is brand new. It was never revealed like this in the Old Testament at all. Now will you notice, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares and of the field. Now he'll interpret that for us. I've already gone over it, but let's listen to this and see whether I was accurate or not. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Well, I'm right on that. The field is the world, right on that. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, right on that. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered together and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now, that is a picture of today. It's Christendom, not the church. That's exactly as it is today. You know, my Lord, he never missed not a time. And this is as accurate a picture of today as you possibly could have. Now, he goes on, and he says in verse 41, "...the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom." all things that offend them which do iniquity. You see, in the kingdom, even the millennium, there's going to be evil, but it's going to be taken out. And he shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The harshest words in Scripture our Lord gave them. These words came from the gentle lips of our very wonderful Lord. Now, will you notice verse 44? We come to the fifth parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now, these parables, that is, we have three now that are coming up after this one are two, it's so into how you look at it. But these parables that you have here have a very particular and peculiar interpretation. Now, we have put down a certain pattern and principle. Our Lord interpreted two of these parables for us. And I don't think we'd have any right to depart from his interpretation. And we need to note that as we go through this section here, because we have coming up now three unusual parables that deal with certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven, that is, as it is today. Now, the first one is verse 44. The field, we already know, is the world. And this is not a sinner buying the gospel, because the gospel, for instance, is not hid in a field. What is it that's hid in a field? Well, it's the nation Israel. The field is the world, and that nation is buried, actually, in the world today. Somebody says, well, they're a nation right now. They are, but they're sure having a struggle, aren't they? And they'll not be able to really enjoy that land until they get it from the Lord Jesus Christ. I was very much interested in reading a paper that I received from that land and it was of a convention that they had had there of certain scientists. 
And I noticed in the picture that there was a great sign in both English and Hebrew above the platform. And it read, Science will give us peace in this land. Well, may I say that science will not give them peace in that land. Only the Prince of Peace can do that. And they are buried as a nation throughout the world. The largest number of the nation Israel are not in that land, but are in New York City, for instance. And they are still scattered throughout the world. But God is not through with them. He says very definitely in the 11th chapter of Romans, Paul wrote, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now, friends, apparently Paul believed that the Lord is not through with him. And Zechariah, one of the last writers in the Old Testament, makes it clear there's coming a day when he wrote in the 12th chapter, verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for me as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That's a day that's yet to come. And you'll find Jeremiah speaks of the fact that he'll gather them from the east and the north and the south and the west. Now, that time is not come yet. When he gathers them back there, they'll even forget the Passover, that which has been remembered longer than any other religious holiday. God is not through with the nation Israel. And this parable, I think, makes that very clear. How did he do it? Well, he's redeemed them. He bought them with his blood, if you please, just as he bought your salvation and my salvation. And there will be, as Zechariah says, that fountain opened in the house of David. Now, we come to the sixth parable, and that's verse 45. And he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, let me give you the popular interpretation of this. The popular interpretation is the sinner is the merchant man, and that the pearl of great price is Christ, and that the sinner goes and sells all that he has that he might buy Christ. Well, that's all very good. It's simple enough. But the merchant man is not the sinner. And the pearl is Christ and salvation, you see, according to these. And there's a hymn that has it like this. I have found the pearl of greatest price. My heart doth sing for joy, and sing I must, for Christ is mine Christ shall my song employ. Well, I can't accept that. I dismiss it as unworthy of thoughtful consideration. Now, to begin with, who is it that's looking for goodly pearls? The sinners looking for salvation? Not the way I read my Bible, nor have I found it that way as a minister. They're not looking for salvation. The merchant man couldn't be the sinner. 
because he doesn't have anything to pay. To begin with, he's not seeking Christ, and even if he found Christ, what would he pay? He has nothing. He says, those that are without money and without price, come and buy. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. And this time he sells all that he has. Well, how can a sinner sell that when he's dead in trespasses and sins? Well, granted that even all that's true, which it's not, but granted that's true, that this interpretation is accurate. What about this? Christ or salvation's not for sale. It's a gift. God so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. The gift of God's eternal life in Christ. Well, somebody says, then what in the world does it mean? Well, a merchant man is Christ. He left home. He came to this earth from heaven. And he came down to find a pearl of great pride. And what did he find? Lost sinners. He died for them. He shed his blood. He sold all that he had. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And he redeemed us to God. He bought us. Now, let's look at that pearl for just a moment. What is the pearl? Well, the pearl's not a stone like a diamond. It's formed by a living organism, a little sea creature. It has a piece of foreign matter, a little particle of sand intrudes itself into the shell of this little creature, and it hurts and harms it. And the organism responds by sending out an accretion and covers over that stone. It gives off that fluid until a ruby-like and emerald-like thing is formed. Oh, no, a beautiful white pearl, not a ruby or emerald. And you don't cut a pearl. A pearl is intact. The minute you cut it, you ruin it. But you can cut a ruby or an emerald. And actually, the pearl was never considered very valuable by the Israelite. You will find that in several passages why you get that impression. Probably I ought to turn to one of those, and it would be over in the 28th chapter of the book of Job. Let me turn there. Read verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? And then verse 16 says, It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. And then he says, listen to this, No mention shall be made of coral, are of pearls, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. In other words, pearls and coral are put together. It wasn't considered valuable among the Hebrews, but it was very valuable to the Gentiles. And so when Christ mentioned goodly pearls, why, his apostles wondered. Oriental people gave to the pearl a symbolic meaning of innocence and purity, that it was fit only for kings and potentates. And now with this information in our thinking, what about a pearl? Look at the parable. Christ came to this earth. He was the merchant man. He saw man in sin, and he took man's sin and bore it. Sin intruded upon him. It was that foreign matter. And he was made sin for us. And someone has put it like this, I got into the heart of Christ 
by a spear wound. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And what was his response? Well, he put around the sinner that trusts him his white robe of righteousness, and he formed the church. And the pearl is the response of the organism. My sin was the foreign object. He made me white. Impurities made pure. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Christ saw what he could make out of us, not what we were. Christ sees his church as she will be someday presented to him without spot and without blemish. And he sold all that he had in order that he might gain the church. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And what do you find when you go over to the book of Revelation? I'll not take time to go over there right now. But you find that new Jerusalem, that's the home of the church. And what is the emblem on the outside of that city? The gates are made of what? Of pearl. That's no accident, friend. May I say to you, he is the merchant man. And he's the one that paid all that he had for your redemption and mine, that he might make the church one body presented to him. And it's different from any other very precious jewel. Now, will you notice the seventh and the last parable in this series? Verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind which when it was full they drew to shore, sat down, gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end, not of the world. The Bible doesn't teach the end of this world. Time will be no more, but eternity begins. And as far as I'm concerned, I can't tell the difference. My friend, I've never met anybody else that could. But it means there's no end to it, whatever it is. So shall it be at the end of the age. It's ion. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. And that's the end of the age when he comes to establish his kingdom, by the way. And he shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Our Lord makes it clear in this section that it's a terrible thing to be lost. I was very much interested in reading a scientific paper by men that were presenting certain evidence in several different fields. And the point was they were not sure exactly what the atom blast would do. They were not sure whether germ warfare would do this. They were not sure what the effect of the pill. There were many things. And then one of the scientists said this. He said, it's just like this matter of eternity today. He said, you may not know whether there's a heaven or hell, but you better make sure that you're going to heaven. Because even if you happen to be wrong, you'll be right. And if you're wrong, it's sure going to be bad. My friend, it is. And our Lord made it very clear it's going to be very bad, by the way. It's very sophisticated today. You'll be a very suave person. You will not be a square if you deny that there's such a thing as hell but my brother, my sister, you don't know a thing in the world about it, really, do you? 
You say, well, you don't either. Only what's in this book. And since this book has been so accurate, and in my own life I've proven it true, I take it for granted that this is accurate. And I work on that premise. And I think it's more than a premise. My friend, if you were told a hurricane was going to hit your town wherever you are, what would you do? Well, if you were given the information, why, you might have somebody come along and say, they said that ten years ago and no hurricane came. And you could say, well, they might have been wrong ten years ago, but they could be right this time. I think I'll go to a storm cellar. You'd be a fool if you didn't. What about the man that says, I'll take my chance be too bad if you're wrong, brother. Our Lord is making that clear in this section here. Now, in verse 52, we come to something that is very important again. There are those that even call this a parable. Maybe it is. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that's a householder. And I take it this is a parable. Which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And that is very personal, so personal that I feel like this is sort of my business. I'm to bring forth things both new and old. When somebody says to me, well, we've heard all that before. Sure you have, but that's my business, to bring forth things old but I do hope we get in a few new things. And that's what we're to do today. Bring forth from the Word of God things both new and old. Verse 53, It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, that's up in the north, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works. Now, they never question whether he performed miracles. I want to make that clear, that in Christ's day, they never questioned it. The thing they question is, how does he do it? Verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? And that's what confused him. They did not recognize really who he was. To them, he was just the carpenter's son. And that's all he is to some folk today. Yes, he's a great teacher. He was a great man, wonderful person. But to me, he's just a carpenter's son. That's what many are saying. My friend, he still asks the question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we're going to hear him ask that question before too long. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brethren James and Joes and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? You see, he had brothers and sisters. They actually were half-brothers and sisters to him. They did not understand him. They were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And that is the thing that, of course, deceives a great many people. You don't get too familiar with him. I'm afraid a great many did in that day. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, this is a tremendous statement. What was it that limited the power of God when he was here? It was unbelief. It wasn't that he wasn't able to do it. 
And friends, the problem with you and with me is that we do not have faith. And now I'm talking about faith for the salvation of men and women. We need that kind of faith today to believe that he can do it. And he's limited today in your community and your church, in your family, and in your own life by unbelief. And that is certainly true of me also. This is a great truth here. Now, that brings us to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we see now the continuance of not only this rejection of him, but actually we see here that there is this antagonism building up. And this movement in Matthew of the rejection of Jesus as king and his conflict with the religious rulers not only continues, but builds up and pyramids. This chapter reveals that events are moving to a crisis. And the slaying of John the Baptist, as we shall see in this chapter on the pretext that Herod must keep his oath, is an overt act of antagonism toward light and right, which must ultimately lay wicked hands on Jesus. Jesus withdrew in order not to force the wicked hand of Herod, for the hour of Jesus had not yet come. Now, we also will come to the feeding of the 5,000. It's an important miracle. All four gospel writers record this, and this is the only one that they do.